0: Good evening, everybody, and we are back to systematic theology. We're in session 48, and what we've been doing is we've been looking at redemption, which is God's work, it's God's project of choosing a people for himself, accomplishing their redemption from sin, then applying that redemption to the elect. And our structure for this part of the study is to go through this logical order of God's application of salvation benefits to his people. And that order of application is called the Ordo Salutis, which is just Latin for the order of salvation. Now, different Reformed theologians, they differ slightly on the order, but I've been presenting the order as, as it's printed there in your notes. And in your notes, they're, they're all numbered there, 0, 1A, 1B, uh, so on. We've covered steps 0 through 2A and 2B. It was election, the effectual call, regeneration, Repentance unto life and faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we're up to so far. And now we're just about ready to launch into another very important aspect of the order of salvation. And that step is justification. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is absolutely key to true doctrine. Getting the doctrine of justification right is crucial to everything else. The 17th century... Puritan preacher Thomas Watson wrote this about how critical the doctrine of justification is. He said, justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. Any error about justification is dangerous like a defect in a fountain. Justification by Christ is is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. Like Thomas Watson said, the correct doctrine of justification is a pillar of our religion, a strong foundation and a hinge on which the church turns. John Calvin wrote the same thing in his work called the Institutes of the Christian Religion when he wrote that justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. It's been said many times that Martin Luther proclaimed the doctrine of justification by faith as the article by which the church stands or falls. Get this doctrine wrong and the church will turn in the wrong direction on everything else. This is one of the foundational doctrines that separates true religion from all the false religions out there in the world. A false doctrine of justification leads to the notion that we are somehow responsible for justifying ourselves rather than the peace Of knowing that Christ has justified us by faith alone. The Belgic Confession tells us that getting the doctrine of justification wrong. Will turn Christ from a real savior to half a savior. And I'll quote from that confession. It says, therefore, for any to assert that Christ is not sufficient. But that something more is required besides him would be too gross a blasphemy. For hence it would follow that Christ was but half a Savior. Therefore, we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone or by faith without works. Now as an introduction to justification, I'm going to read first from the book of Job, chapter 25. Job chapter 25. Man continually searches for the answer to the question posed several times in the book of Job. In Job chapter 25, I'm going to be in verse 4. There's this question that's posed by one of Job's friends, Bildad. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Bildad's statement is a question, but it's also kind of a lament in a way. Bildad compares the greatness and holiness of God to the smallness and sinfulness of man. How can that gap be bridged so that man can be in the right before God? In the next passage that I'm going to read from Psalm 143, David knew that man, if he's left to his own efforts, can't be righteous when exposed to the judgment of God. And David cries out to God in Psalm 143. I'll be in verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. So we have the question in in the book of Job, and then the Psalm of David. They agree on this, that sin is universal. No one can be pure before God by their own efforts. The conscience of man has to deal with this question. How then can man be in the right before God? Some people claim they can stand before God in judgment, offering their own works. Or they may just refuse to believe in a God who judges, or perhaps they're even atheists. And these people are simply looking away from the question. And they're being dishonest with themselves. People who are truly honest with themselves have to grapple with the question, how then can man be in the right before God? This is the question that's on the mind of man. False religions will advise man to just do his best and, you know, God will accept your best efforts. And other false religions might say that, well, man, it's not as bad as all that. You know what? In a previous study, we looked at common grace And how God keeps man from sinking as low as he possibly could since society itself would not be possible if man acted as evil as he could possibly be. And this element of common grace is civic righteousness, which is just people acting nice and doing what they're, you know, sort of like let your conscience be your guide, so to speak. You know, probably most people rely on civic righteousness to outweigh their sins before God but even our best works of civic righteousness, they not only fall short of the perfect righteousness to stand before God, but all of our works are fatally tainted with sin. Now, before we launch into the great doctrine of justification, justification by faith alone, we need to take a little detour. We need to begin with some groundwork on understanding the law of God. Because justification... Before God, the question of how sinful man can be righteous and accepted in God's sight, that is connected with God's law. False religions get justification wrong because of errors in saying what the law is and what the law can do and cannot do. God gave his law with a purpose. If we get that purpose wrong, we'll get everything wrong in the next steps of the Ordo Salutis that we're studying. It's critical that we distinguish between the steps coming up in the Ordo Salutis. We have to distinguish between the steps. Justification is one thing. Sanctification is another thing. False religions are built on trying to mix the two together. Justification and sanctification into some mixture. False religions go in that direction. False religion will say that we gain a right standing with God by how successful we are with our ongoing growth and sanctification. If we think that we can gain a righteous, legal standing before a holy God by our own efforts, we'll never have peace in our souls because we'll never be able to do enough works of our own to be sure of entering the final judgment. How much is enough? What's the quality of my works that I need if it depends somewhat on me? What's the quality of the works and what's the quantity of works? When does it finally come to an end? You don't know. You'll never have peace. So, we're going to start down this little detour, this look into the law of God. First of all, when we come to the word law in Scripture, we need to find out what the word means. When Scripture uses the word law, what exactly does it mean? It turns out that Scripture uses the word law in several ways. And the 17th century scholar Samuel Bolton wrote a list of things that could be meant when scripture uses the word law. First, all the scriptures of the Old Testament. Second, all of the word of God. Three, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Or four, the teaching of Moses. Or five, the moral law or the Ten Commandments. Or six, the ceremonial law. Or seven, or all of the laws, moral, ceremonial, and judicial How do we know what we should think of when we run into the word law in scripture from the context, from the context? And we have an example of how the word law is used by Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. And that's where I'm going to be next in chapter 11. Jesus here is speaking to the crowds about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist was the last of the prophets who prophesied of Christ. I'll be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 12 to 14. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So the context of this passage tells us how Jesus used the word law. In this case, it's one of the major divisions of Old Testament scripture. Theologians have three categories or divisions to the Old Testament. The law or the Torah, which is the first five books, and then the prophets, and then the writings. The division of the Pentateuch and the division of the prophets both pointed to Christ, with John the Baptist being the last of the prophets that pointed forward. Now I'll use another example of how Jesus used the word law. I'll use the example from the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28. Now, in this passage, an expert in the law confronted Jesus with a test, as many of the Jewish leaders tried to do, in order to trap Jesus in his words. Now, of course, their tricks never worked, but didn't keep them from trying. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put into the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do? to inherit eternal life. He said to him, "What is written in the law? How do you read it?" And he answered, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself." And he said to him, "You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live." So here we have the lawyer trying to test Jesus by asking how to gain eternal life. This is a most important question. But the lawyer was asking from impure motives to try to trap Jesus in some way. Jesus then turns the question around on the lawyer. Since the lawyer is an expert in the law of God, he should already know what the law says about gaining life if you're going to do it through law keeping. When the lawyer answered correctly, Jesus said so. Then simply said what the law promises to anyone who can keep the entire law perfectly in every detail. Do this and you will live. Of course, the lawyer knew he hadn't kept the law perfectly. He goes on to try to excuse himself by finding a loophole, by redefining the word neighbor. So in this case, when we run across the word law, it's used here to point to the moral division of the law. and We can tell from the context because the lawyer answers his own question with the two great commandments. Love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds and he answered correctly. If we're going to try to be saved by our own efforts, which is what the lawyer was aiming at, then we would have to keep the two great commandments perfectly. Do this and you will live. So as we read the scriptures, we'll come across the word law quite often. And the first thing to do when we come across the word is to ask, what is meant by the word law? In this passage. Remember, it's like I named off seven things it could mean. The way to find out is to keep reading. It's a good approach to start with, and you run across any passage that's difficult. Keep reading. In other words, get the whole context. What's the main point of the passage? What's the main point of the chapter? What's the point of the book itself? Keep reading. Get the context. As we begin the step, of the Ordo salute is called justification. We'll find out that justification has much to do with the law of God. And that's the reason for this little detour into looking at God's law. The word law in scripture can mean several things. But when it comes to justification, the focus is on the law delivered from God to Moses. So we're going to spend some time looking at the law of God as delivered to Moses and to the people of Israel. The law of God, as delivered to Moses, has three divisions. There is the ceremonial law, then the civil and criminal code, which is the the definition of crime and punishment for the nation. And then third, the moral law. Ceremonial law, the civil and criminal code, and then the moral law. Three divisions of the law of Moses. First, the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law governed how God was to be worshipped. In the tabernacle, in the temple, the holy days, the work of the priests, the laws concerning clean versus unclean, food laws, all the laws surrounding worship, the ceremonial law. Now, the ceremonial laws had several purposes for Israel. The ceremonial laws, first of all, were types and shadows of the coming work of Christ. And then secondly, the ceremonies also distinguished and divided God's people from the surrounding nations. And this distinguishing and division is shown in Ephesians chapter 2, which is where I'll be reading from next. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here Paul is referring to two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. There was a wall of hostility in the Old Testament built between those two people, Jews and Gentiles, a wall. A high wall, an impenetrable wall of hostility. We have a wall in our backyard. It separates the backyard from the street. This is more like the Great Wall of China that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Before Christ accomplished his work on the cross, there was this dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And that hostility came from the separation of Jews from the surrounding nations. And that separation was made apparent by God's law. And in this context, I think the ceremonial law is what verse 15 is pointing to when it speaks of ordinances. The ceremonies separated the Jews from the Gentiles. The ceremonies were a dividing wall. So the ceremonial division of the law serves several purposes. One of the purposes was instruction on the coming work of Christ using types and shadows. And another purpose was to separate God's people from the surrounding nations like a dividing wall. But where are we at with the ceremonial division of the law today? It has been fulfilled. It's no longer in force. The ceremonies have served their purpose. Christ has fulfilled the types and shadows of the ceremonies. And also God has placed Believing Jews and believing Gentiles, all who are saved by Christ into one body. The passage in Ephesians that we just read tells us that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down by the work of Christ. I'll be in Galatians chapter 3 next. Galatians chapter 3 has another passage. It tells us that that old division between Jew and Gentile, that wall of division, has been erased. I'll read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs According to promise. When it comes to how we are right before God. How we are saved. There are no more divisions for those in Christ. And as that passage we read in Ephesians says. The dividing wall has been broken down. The ceremonies of the Mosaic Covenant serve to separate Jew from Gentile. With this wall of hostility. But in Christ the dividing wall has been broken down. Ceremonial law also served as types and shadows of the work of Christ that was yet to come. Because the fulfillment of these types and shadows has come, we don't observe the types and shadows anymore. Colossians chapter 2, which is where I'll be next, is one passage that speaks to the passing away of the ceremonial law. I'll be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Shadow and substance. Under the covenant of Moses, there were shadows. When you see a shadow, you assume that there's something solid making the shadow. Verse 17 is referring to this difference between the shadow and what is solid, making the shadow. There's a big difference between a shadow and the substance making the shadow. Remember the animated cartoon Peter Pan, where Peter Pan had a shadow that was disconnected from him, basically, and didn't necessarily follow him around and played havoc with him and played games with him and whatnot. It's not the way shadows work. A substance makes a shadow. If you see a shadow, you have to assume there's substance behind it. The ceremonies were shadows of the substance that was yet to come. As verse 17 says, the substance belongs to Christ. So verse 16, it tells the Colossians to reject any judgment on their behavior regarding ceremonial laws like food laws or special days. So there's no more need for the old ceremonies. Ceremonial law has passed away. The ceremonial law had purposes as types and shadows that have now been fulfilled, so that purpose is obsolete. The ceremonial law also enforced a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, but the dividing wall has been broken down in Christ, so that purpose is obsolete. The ceremonial law served its purpose, so as Christians we don't observe them. That's the first division of the law, the ceremonial division. The next division of the law is the civil law or judicial law. The law of God brought to the people by Moses, it included an entire system of criminal and civil justice, which was to govern the political nation of that time. What the Westminster Confession of Faith says about this is that the judicial laws were given specifically to the nation of Israel at that time. And that in one sense, those judicial laws have expired. But in another sense, part of it is not. Here's how the confession speaks to how we look at the civil division of the law today. And I'll quote from it. It says, to them also, in other words, to them, the nation of Israel, the Old Testament, as a body politic, which means political Israel, he gave various judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging under any now, Further than the general equity thereof may require. General equity. Hmm. We'll get into that in a minute. To bring this into more modern language, God gave the political nation of ancient Israel various laws that related to civic justice. Those laws pertain to the unique nation of Israel, That ancient nation was a theocracy, and that meant that God was to rule that nation, and he did so through three institutions, prophet, priest, and king. And the civic division of God's law governed the political rule of the nation. But that theocracy is gone. And the specific laws that governed it have, in the words of the Westminster Confession, expired. But the confession does go on, and it says there's something called general equity, which the laws of the nations and the consciences of people are still responsible to uphold as a matter of justice. So what does this phrase general equity mean? General equity means that there is an underlying principle or purpose to those civic laws that we read about in the Old Testament. There's an underlying purpose, an underlying principle. The underlying principle still remains because God is a God of justice. God's purposes of justice, they haven't just gone away just because ancient Israel passed away. Now, the civic laws of Israel do reveal God's character and holiness. God still holds nations responsible for punishing crimes. Nations still have laws and punishments for murder and theft. The nations have or should have a somewhat common notion of right and wrong under civic law. William Perkins, who was a 16th century English Puritan, wrote this about the definition of general equity. He wrote, judicial's of common equity are such as are made according to the law or instinct of nature, common to all men. What does that mean? (laughs) 16th century language. In other words, the parts of the civic law that agree with moral law and ordinary justice are general legal principles that God holds nations responsible for upholding. In previous studies, we looked at God's common grace to the nations. And part of God's common grace is holding back the nations from being as evil as they could possibly be. The nations are not left completely lawless. There are still common notions of legal justice. For example, one of the laws given by God specifically to ancient Israel was the law that if a married man died without children who could inherit the land, the man's brother was to take his widow as his own in order to give a son to the family line of the dead brother. This was a law given by God that was appropriate to the circumstances of the time in ancient Israel. It's not meant to be observed anymore. But on the other hand, the old Testament also had laws against murder nations in general hold murder to be wrong and punishable. And the principle of general equity says that God holds nations accountable to enforce laws against, say, murder. One of the New Testament passages that speak to the fact that the civic part of the Mosaic law is expired, except for this general equity principle, is in 1 Peter, which is where I'll be next. 1 Peter. I'll read him from 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. In this section, Peter was writing to Christians who were under persecution one of the things that Peter wanted them to do was to behave in a manner that would take away all excuses from their persecutors. And one of the ways that they were to behave was to be in submission to authority, including the civil authority of the emperor. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, Part of the duty of Christians is to submit to civic authority. Our obedience is not based on whether the government has exactly the same laws as ancient Israel. Instead, our obedience is based on Peter's statement in verse 15 that we are doing good by recognizing that governmental authority is there to punish evil and praise those who are good. That is the concept of general equity that government is to recognize general principles of good and evil and act accordingly. Is this perfect? Far from it. We still live in a sinful world. And Peter likely wrote this letter when Nero was emperor. And as bad as we sometimes see things, we're, we're not to the point where the government's as bad as Nero. What I want to point out from this is verse 14, where God's purpose for... Civil government in the nations comes down to two tasks, punish evil and reward good. And even when governments don't do this very well, that is their God-given task, whether they do it perfectly or not. The task of nations that are not ancient Israel is to enforce what we've defined as general equity. General equity is ordinary justice arising from a common understanding of moral law the exact laws of ancient Israel expired because ancient Israel no longer exists as a civic nation. Now, modern Israel still exists from 1948 on, but it doesn't have the same government as ancient Israel. Now, we're going to move on to the third division of the law as given to Moses. It's the moral law, the moral law. This division of the law, the moral law, is what separates sin from righteousness. The moral law is a reflection of God's character and it's shown in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can be divided into what are called the two tables of the commandments. The first table is how we are to love God. The second table shows how we are to love our neighbor. I'll be next in Matthew chapter 22. And there in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus summarizes the content of the Ten Commandments in two great commandments. Matthew 22, verses 35 to 40. In this portion, the Pharisees send a a lawyer to question Jesus in order to test him. One of these tests again. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is is the great and first commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets now the pharisees they had debates about how to rank the various laws by importance but when jesus is asked to rank which is the greatest he answers directly and simply by quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is, as in the original Greek, the megas command, the megas command, the great commandment. In addition to being the great commandment, it is the protos commandment, the first commandment. It is the protos or first commandment, not because there's a list that lists it first, but because it's first in importance. Then Jesus gives the commandment that is second on the list of importance. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then in verse 40, Jesus tells the lawyer this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I like how the King James translates this verse. It reflects the original Greek by translating it like this. On these two commandments Hang all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. All the other laws depend on these two great commandments as though they hung from them. Imagine in your mind for a moment the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a suspension bridge. The entire bridge portion is hung from cables connected to two great towers that are fixed to the bedrock. The entire bridge is hung on that great two-fold superstructure. We can think of the two great commandments like that. They are a superstructure on which all the other laws hang. So, is the moral division of the law still binding today? We looked at the ceremonial division of the law. We saw that the ceremonial division looked forward to Christ in types and shadows. Well, Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law. The Westminster Confession of Faith calls the ceremonial law abrogated under the New Testament. Abrogated. What does abrogated mean? It means to abolish by the order of an authority. The Lord, in his authority, has abolished the ceremonial law, and it is therefore abrogated. Then we looked at the division of the law called the civil law. The Westminster Confession of Faith uses a somewhat different word than abrogated, to show the status of the civil law of Israel. The word they use for the civil law is expired. The civil portion of the law was in force in Israel for as long as ancient Israel existed, but it expired when ancient Israel ceased. But what about the moral division of the law? Is the moral division of the law binding today? The Westminster Confession of Faith answers this question by saying that the moral law does forever bind all. The moral portion of the law is still in force today, and it continues to be valid and binding on both Christians and non-Christians. The 17th century theologian Herman Witsius points out that the Ten Commandments, the summary of God's moral law, were written on stone while the other aspects of God's law were not written on anything permanent like stone. Witzius stated that this symbolically points to the permanence of God's moral law. Witzius wrote this about the civic law and the ceremonial law. He wrote, The other laws, which were to continue at least until the time of the restitution, in other words, the New Testament, and whose abrogation were at hand, were written by Moses on less durable material, not stone. In other words, the civic and ceremonial divisions of the law were temporary until Christ and were not written on permanent stone. Then Witsius goes on about the permanent nature of God's moral law. He wrote, but this moral law, which is of eternal obligation, was engraved by God himself on stone. What Witsius was saying was that since the moral division of the law, the Ten Commandments, was permanent, this was shown in two ways. It was written in stone, and it was written by the finger of God. The 17th century Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote about the tables of stone being written with the finger of God and how that shows that the moral law is part of God's dominion or God's sovereignty. He wrote, the dominion of God appears in the moral law and his Majesty in publishing it, as the law of nature was written by his own fingers in the nature of man, so it was engraved by his own finger in the tables of stone, which is very emphatically expressed to be a mark of God's dominion. It is not said of any part of the Scripture that it was written by the finger of God, but only of the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments. Herein he would have his so- his sovereignty imminently appear. The moral law of God is the permanent part of the law delivered by Moses. While the ceremonial portion of the law was fulfilled in Christ, and the judicial part of the law expired with the end of ancient Israel, the moral part of the law remains. We've seen that God's writing the Ten Commandments himself on stone shows the permanence of the moral law and the sovereignty and dominion of God in placing mankind under the moral law. The reason that the moral portion of the law is permanent is because it reflects the character of God. A few minutes ago, we looked at how the entire law hangs from the two great commandments, love God with all our being and love our neighbor as ourselves. The moral portion of the law fills in the details on the two great commandments. And these two great commandments, love God and love neighbor, reflect God's attribute of love. And we studied that divine attribute clear back in session 18. In that session, we defined divine love using three different wordings. And I'm going to go back and review those. First, divine love is God's own expression of goodness toward his creation in grace, kindness, and care for the creation. And another way of wording it is that perfection of God which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. And then a third wording is this, the pleasure that God has in contemplating those creatures who reflect his moral image and his granting of grace to his elect. The persons of the Trinity love one another. So the divine attribute of love was present before the creation itself. In the Gospel of John, Chapter 17, Jesus in his great high priestly prayer tells us of the intertrinitarian love, the love of the persons of the Trinity for one another. And I'll read from John chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me Before the foundation of the world. The divine attribute of love continued after creation. God's love is shown in his grace and mercy toward his creation. There's a general compassion that God displays toward all of mankind. And that's not a saving grace. But it's what we studied before as common grace. God still provides for undeserving mankind with good things. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9 speak of this love of God shown in common grace, and I'll read from that. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. When we studied the attributes of God over two years ago now, we learned that love is among God's communicable, attributes. Communicable attributes you might remember are are God's attributes that God can and does share with his creatures and we as Christians were called to imitate it. God loves perfectly and as Christians we're called to imitate this in a creaturely way. In other words a finite way and in a way that increases over time. As Christians we are sons of the Father And scripture tells us to imitate God's love. I'll read two verses to show the theme of this imperative. First, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. Matthew 5, beginning of verse 44. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. And he also tells us why. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so That you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We are to love our enemies. Those who we might think undeserving of our love. The reason is that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And then next Ephesians chapter 5, I'll read verses 1 and 2, where Paul repeats on this theme of our Christian love being an imitation of the love of God. He wrote, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When we look closely at the words of verses 1 and 2, we can pick out several things. First, the grammar of the original Greek is a construction that is a form of Greek grammar called the present imperative. Now, for those of us who've been in home church fellowship for a while, we already know what the grammar of the present imperative means, what we've been studying for quite a while in home church fellowship. The imperative part means It's a command. That's what the word imperative means. We're being instructed or commanded to do something. Then we get to the present part of present imperative. The present tense modifies the command and tells us we're to follow this instruction as an ongoing habit. Not just once, an ongoing habit. So the grammar instructs us here that we're told to imitate God on an ongoing basis, as an ongoing habit. And then second, the passage here gives us the proper motivation, which is not to earn salvation or gain justification, but out of gratitude, based on what is true about us, that we are beloved children of God. The passage doesn't just give us a command, but it gives us the motivating reason. The fact that we are already children of God in Christ, So we should therefore act in this way. When the passage says that we are already children of God, this is called an indicative statement. An indicative statement. It indicates something that is true. It indicates that we are adopted children of God. The passage tells us the way that we're told to imitate God as a habit of Christian life, it's to walk in love. Once again, this is in the Greek grammar of the present imperative. We're instructed to walk in love as an ongoing habit of life, not at just one moment. We do this by gradually growing in the love of God and love of neighbor and doing the good works that reflect this love. The fact that love is a communicable attribute of God is shown in this command, this imperative, that we imitate God by walking in love. Why am I emphasizing these two words, indicative and imperative? Indicative and imperative. The reason is because it's so important to proper theology to get the order right between indicative and imperative. The indicative is to come before the imperative. In other words, the statement of what Christ has already done for us, and as a result, who we already are in Christ, the indicative comes first. It is because of what Christ has done that there's a following imperative, what we're instructed to do in response. The letters of Paul are all structured this way. Paul first writes about the indicative, what Christ has done, and our position in Christ. And after that... Only then does Paul go into imperatives, what we are to do on an ongoing basis out of gratitude as fruit and evidence of our justification. So much bad theology comes from reversing this proper order of indicative and imperative. We don't follow God's commands in order to earn the benefit of justification, that would be the case if we reverse things to first imperative and then indicative. The order of indicative first tells us what Christ has done for us, and that's purely from grace, not our own works. In this passage in Ephesians that we read a few minutes ago, Paul tells us what to do to imitate God by walking in love according to his moral law, but importantly, he gives the indicative that we are beloved children of God. The reason is not to earn justification. But we do this from gratitude because of who we are in Christ. We are adopted children of God in Christ. The passage indicates who we are in Christ. And only then does it give the imperative, the instruction on how we live as a result of that. This is The indicative versus imperative distinction. For the Christian, words that are indicative are words that indicate who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. Imperative words instruct and command us in how to live in response to who we are. The difference between indicative and imperative. Getting the order right is so important. Getting this right keeps us from the falsehood of thinking that we have to keep the moral law in order to be justified. Justification is a gift of God's grace. And we reach for it with the open, empty hand of faith. We are then accepted in Christ by grace. Once that happens, the indicative of what has happened, only then do we have the imperatives of living in love, according to the moral law, out of gratitude. And as you read through the letters of Paul, the New Testament, see how often he first reminds us of the indicative, what Christ has done for us before giving imperatives, how we are to live as a result. We've started on a detour from the Ordo Salutis to study God's law which has everything to do with justification. And we're going to continue this detour for the next three studies and focus on the division of the law that bears directly on justification. That's the moral law. So for the next three studies, we're going to be looking at the, further at the moral law. And we're going to look, coming up at the next three studies, at the three correct ways to use the moral law of God. There are unlawful ways to use the law, but there's three correct ways to use the moral law. Thanks for coming tonight. See you next week.